Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, I, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, no, nope. no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. Hey everybody, welcome to Eyes Left. We are here possibly on the brink of a, another major war in Iraq, uh, coupled with a possible major war on the country of Iran, spurred by Trump's uh, belligerent aggression with the assassination of a, a leader of a sovereign country. And as this plays out, we wanted to do a quick, uh, you know, emergency broadcast to be able to bring everyone up to speed, let you know what your options are if you're in the military, uh, and kind of some broader ideas of how you can counter the war propaganda, but also get involved in the movement to stop it. You know, there was uh, huge demonstrations as part of a National Day of Action last Saturday, where uh, over 90 cities and towns around the country had thousands of people come out to protest Trump's war. There is much more anti-war actions being planned. In fact, on January 25th, there's a global day of action with anti-war organizations all across the country, or all across the world, rather, uh, organizing a global day of action against war with Iran. There's gonna be a veterans and service members contingent of those demonstrations nationwide. You can check our Eyes Left social media for information how to be a part of the Eyes Left contingent, or the uh, veterans contingents that will be leading those marches. Um, but just to get started, I am Mike Preisner. I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, joined by my co-host, Spencer Rapone in New York, and we have a special guest with us today, Rory Fanning from Chicago. What's up, boys? Hey, guys. It's great to be on the show. Yeah, we're really happy to have you, Rory. And just so, um, you know, if, if listeners uh, don't know who you are, you want to just give us a quick uh, background of yours? Uh, sure. Um, I uh, signed up for the military, like a lot of people, right after 9-11. Recently graduated college looking to pay off some student loans. Uh, before I knew it, I found myself in Afghanistan with the 2nd Ranger Battalion. Uh, I was expecting bullets to be whizzing by my head as I landed in the country. Uh, I was immediately struck by levels of poverty and the general quiet in the country. Country devastated by civil war, uh, occupation, Russians, soon to be the US. Uh, started feeling like a bully pretty quick and I decided that I couldn't partake uh, in the U.S. global war on terror anymore. And I signed up to fight for freedom and democracy, help prevent another 9-11. You know, I realized I was uh, certainly not fighting for freedom and democracy and only making the world a much more dangerous place um, by targeting so many uh, what turned out to be innocent civilians in Afghanistan. And uh, then Iraq happened and it just all seemed to make sense to that I needed to get out of the military as soon as possible. Um, the military wasn't exactly on my schedule. It took about six months uh, to leave the military. Um, I was probably the first guy after 9-11 to try to become a war resister within the battalion. Um, everybody kind of turned their back on, on me and started absorbing the ridicule, the chain of command. Uh, there were two guys that kind of stood, stood, stood by me that entire time. That was Pat Tillman and Kevin Tillman. Uh, really kind of impressive guys. And uh, I got uh, called down to formation after about six months of punishment detail, thinking this was the day I was getting released from the military. I mean, I'm sorry, getting sent off to the big army uh, to become bullet stopper as uh, mm -hmm. they were mm -hmm. often referred to within the battalion <laughs> or uh, go off to prison. 
Um, but what I found out was that Pat Tillman had been killed the night before. Um, they said he died a hero in an enemy ambush. You know, uh, and I was just stunned. You know, Pat and Kevin were two of the guys that weren't afraid to talk to me during this kind of six months of purgatory within battalion. And, uh, you know, so I went back up to my room, shell shocked, stunned, um, got called back down a few hours later, uh, not, ex not knowing what to expect. And they said, Roy, pack your bags. Uh, you're leaving. I was gone within, I don't know, a week. Uh, back to Chicago, no jail, no big army, no long lecture. They just wanted me out. Uh, I later find out that they were covering up Pat Tillman's death. I filed an IG report and I think they just didn't want the added attention and the added pressure. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, I found myself back in Chicago working in a cubicle, trying to uh, just process my whole situation, feeling like a half a person in a lot of regards. Came from a fairly right wing Catholic family. They liked the idea that they sent off a, a war hero to fight the war on terror. So I really wasn't telling my story, but feeling like half of a person. And so I decided that um, I couldn't spend the rest of my life like that. I had to do something big. Uh, so I decided to walk across the United States. Um, you know, I had, I had a hard time just looking people in the, the eye after the military. And the walk allowed me to kind of walk at my own pace talk to people when I wanted to talk to them, leave them when I wanted to. It took me about eight months. And I was going to raise the $3.6 million that I left, that Pat Tillman gave up when he left the NFL for the military, for the foundation. I was feeling very guilty about leaving my Ranger buddies. And this was kind of a consolation to myself and also a way to maybe feel better about myself after leaving the military because they did everything possible to kind of like destroy <laughs> who I was during that six month time, you know, to say nothing of what I saw and what happened over in Afghanistan. But, um, so yeah, after that eight month walk where I talked to high schools and prisons and it was mostly a feel good walk. I was just talking about figuring out what you love, giving it away, you know, being more like Pat Tillman in large part because I was still scared of talking about what happened to me in the military. Um, I got finished with that eight month journey, um, still didn't feel right, so I decided to retrace my steps via history books. I walked where Ida B. Wells wrote her anti-lynching papers. I walked where Nat Turner had a slave uprising. I walked where the San Patricio Battalion refused to fight the Mexicans in the Mexican-American War and were all hung by U.S. generals. Um, where Dolores Huerta organized farm workers and you know these were conscientious objectors of a different sort you know if they could do what I what they did I certainly could do speak out about my experience in the military so uh, I wrote put all that stuff down in a book I started um, called worth fighting for uh, I've since been talking to high schools um, colleges prisons when they let me um, uh, about the military and um, my full experience. Um, we have 10,000 mil military recruiters here in Chicago. I mean, across the country, kind of preying on young people. Uh, Chicago has a huge JROTC program uh, here, and I try to get into one of the 45 JROTC programs here in Chicago and tell the kids what they don't hear from recruiters. And that's essentially been my last 
I don't know, since 2014. It, you know, it took me 10 years to build up the courage to start talking about this stuff. Um, but since then, it's been kind of full speed ahead. Yeah, uh, you mentioned your book, Worth Fighting For, which of course is excellent, and I highly recommend it to everyone listening. And I read it while I was still a cadet, and that's when I first got in touch with you, uh, Rory. And, you know, we've done talks together, we've written a thing together, um, but I'm glad you mentioned the 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 process of ostracization that you went through while still in the battalion and deciding that, you know, you were turning against this philosophically and morally, if not yet, you know, having formed a coherent political vision. But, uh, you know, myself, uh, when I was going through uh, my time in uh, battalion uh, with the Rangers and I decided I wanted to pursue a commission and uh, I soon found myself at odds because I was also questioning the war effort. Um, I got sent to the uh, big army for a few months before being sent off to West Point and pursuing my commission and then further, you know, radicalizing and so on and so forth. But at the end of it all, as alone as you might feel in those moments of being ostracized, whether you're in a so-called elite unit or just any other billet uh, in the military, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned this in talks, you mentioned this uh, in your book, and you just published um, a piece today with Truth Out mentioning this, but as alone as you might feel, it's always the movement on the outside and those activists are waging the struggle um, against endless war that gives you a new community and allows you to uh, take those courageous steps. Uh, can you just speak to the moment uh, we were in historically when you decided to uh, speak out or or when you decided to turn against the military because of what they had done through your experiences in Afghanistan and also uh, with regards to how they, you know, covered up Pat Tillman and so on. Sure. Um, you know, as you guys both know, the once you're in the military, um, you know, soldiers are famously apolitical or try to be, at least pretend to be uh, apolitical. Um, it's not about the mission necessarily in a lot of ways it is but in a lot of ways it isn't it's about the but it's mostly about the guy to your left and right um you never abandon your ranger buddy type thing but it's impossible not to notice what um the civilian population for lack of a better term is doing in the in the larger world and i saw the protests in iraq in 2003 and of course i didn't necessarily jump right into the movement after i left the military and i completely understand why soldiers don't do that but the the chance you know an understanding that i wasn't going insane i wasn't the only person um questioning the invasion of iraq i wasn't the only person questioning uh the occupation of afghanistan i mean that was very comforting through a very uncomfortable point in my life. You know, Pat Tillman, you know, was also thinking about that type of stuff. Kevin was thinking about that type of stuff. Uh, we were able to talk about it. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was the larger movement that I think ultimately gave me the courage to, you know, go down, talk to my chain of command and say, I'm done. And it was a really scary point. And, uh, you know, I still think about it you know, quite regularly, you know, two o'clock in the morning. But it's, you know, it was the larger movement that gave me the courage, uh, reminded me, because um, it's very easy to feel like you're going insane in this kind of island, um, which was the battalion at the time. And uh, yeah, if it wasn't for the movement, I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I certainly wouldn't have left the military. Um, I will say that you know, if I were to do it again, I would have spent a lot more time talking with 
my fellow soldiers because sure. I wasn't the only per person questioning yeah. this mission, even in the battalion. Um, you know, and my only advice to soldiers who are questioning the mission now is if you are going to resist, make sure or try to resist in groups because it's much easier to resist in groups than it is to, as an individual. Absolutely. Um, very powerful, Rory. Um, I did want to give just a little bit of attention to your experience with uh, with the Tillmans, because we you know that this was like, you know, I I was a part of the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and like Pat Tillman joining the military was just such a major propaganda tool of, you know, get for those who don't know who he is, giving up a career in the NFL, $4 million contract to, uh, you know, serve our country after 9-11, um, going into the Ranger unit as an infantryman, just like you and Spencer both did. Um, and then, you know, getting killed, the killing was covered up. Um, of course, the nature of his killing was covered up. But even after his death, and even after it was very much exposed that the military had flat out lied to his family, lied to the American people in an attempt to continue to use him for this recruitment propaganda, uh, they still continue to do it. And I even still see the depiction of Tillman, uh, you know, like it's still used in a, in a very broad way about, you know, giving up everything to serve your country and do what's right and all of that stuff. Um, but you had come in some personal interactions with him while you were res refusing to continue to go to war and while you were getting yourself chaptered out as conscientious objection. So I didn't know if there's anything just to kind of set the record straight about who Pat Tillman was and kind of your... Uh, the personal experiences you had with him in relation to your own resistance. Yeah, Pat was one of the most engaging human beings I've ever met. Um, you know, when I talked, he listened. You know, I think the first time I met Pat, he was uh, exchanging a five-page paper that he had written along with his brother and maybe one other guy about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Wow. This is this is, you know, in between like rip. This is like a, a, a downtime after between training and. Um, yeah, incredibly engaging, you know, strong-willed, um, and he too, I think, you know, he wanted to do his part after 9-11. Um, yeah, he had a dream job, he had millions of dollars, but he also, um, you know, said that's actually not what's important, you know, fighting for a cause bigger than myself, that's, that's what I believe in. And I think he was, um, you know, very let down by what he saw in Afghanistan, Iraq, he was on the front lawn when Jessica Lynch, that whole manufactured mm, right. staging of uh, rescue of Jessica Lynch, um, he saw that. Um, you know, it, it wasn't what the movies, the video games, the recruiters uh, had made it out to be. Um, and, you know, I think he realized that. And uh, to be able to have conversations about that, and it was with Pat, was a very uh, reassuring thing on a, on a certain level because he was this larger-than-life guy. You know, he's kind of built like a Greek statue and, you know, <laughs> smart and intense and uh, he had a history, you know, cool history. So, yeah, it's, I think it's pretty shameless to uh, use the legacy of someone who is so interested in truth and so interested in figuring out how, you, how to process this world in the right kind of way and doing the right thing morally. Uh, to use his name to promote further war, I think, is the last thing uh, Pat would have done. And uh, it's, yeah, it's shameless. The lies have not stopped. <laughs> and they, they continue on. Right. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the moment wherein he's exchanging an essay with his brother and uh, someone else. And you go, uh, you know, you mentioned it in somewhat detail in your book as well. And specifically, I wanted to bring up, it was at the... Um, 
the Fountain City coffee shop in Columbus, Georgia on a weekend when everyone is, you know, going to the bars and, you know, doing, you know, God knows what. And you happen to just see them there, you know, enjoying a cup of coffee and uh, engaged intellectually. And I remember how that, you know, really uh, left, you know, made an impact on you as, as it did for me reading it. And, you know, during my time when I had to return to Fort Benning, Georgia, during um, I Bullock, I, uh, I remember I spent many hours there reading Gramsci and Howard Zinn and some others. So uh, it, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that aspect uh, of your relationship with um, Pat Rory, because I think it's, for me, one of the most compelling uh, aspects uh, of his story. Yeah. I mean, as you guys both know, you know, the Army, you know, 99%, the main reason for most of the training in the military is just to condition a soldier to never question the chain of command and to say yes to every single order. Um, food, you know, deprivation, sleep deprivation, you know, the monotony. It's just to just grind people down. And it was so refreshing to be around someone who embraced critical thinking and fought against uh, the attempts of the military to kind of grind him down. And I think that's why he was so committed, particularly in the middle of a training session, to, to think about larger topics and to d- discuss them critically. Yeah, well, that, it's, we really appreciate your work, Rory, and kind of, um, you know, really doing justice, the legacy of Pat Tillman and who he was. And, you know, if the U.S. government and the corporate media and, you know, right-wingers, if they want to make Pat Tillman an example of what you should aspire to, then then let's let him do that in the way that he really was. And Pat Tillman is someone who supported you in your decision to refuse to take part in the military and its wars anymore. Um, and so that's the example that people should take from it and take kind of get more confidence in their own actions, people who are in the military now, questioning whether or not that's the right decision. To think of someone uh, as important as Pat Tillman was is someone who would have supported them in that in that decision. Um, but let's move on to the topic at hand, which is, in my opinion, uh, at, at, on a precipice that was as dangerous and as great as the eve of the invasion of Iraq, when it was unsure whether or not the U.S. was going to go through with the large-scale invasion of Iraq. I don't know if the two of you share that that sentiment of the seriousness of the issue we're in, but just to kind of recap the timeline before I get both of your thoughts on it, you know, this really didn't start with the assassination of a Iranian top Iranian general, in fact, the most important Iranian general in Iran and, and political and uh, public figures in Iran. Um, but it started, you know, of course, we can go back into the U.S. occupation of Iraq and what it means for U.S. forces to still be on Iraqi soil, but the kind of current... A uh, crisis began with a U.S. airstrike that uh, killed dozens of members of a so-called Iranian-backed militia, which was an Iraqi militia, Iraqis in their own country. Uh, dozens of them were killed by this U.S. airstrike, uh, absolutely done unilaterally, no right for the U.S. to, to c- carry out this attack at all. This was in response to the supposed a killing of an American contractor by this militia. There is no evidence that this militia actually killed this contractor, whether it was done on purpose, if it was an accident, whatever, uh, what this contractor was doing, where they were, who that, what kind of contractor they were. Um, but in so, so-called retaliation to this death of an American contractor, uh, they carry out this airstrike, a massive protest at the U.S. embassy, you know, breaking down the gates of the embassy, huge sustained uh, protest at the U.S. embassy, and for, for violating Iraqi sovereignty and killing so many Iraqis on their own soil uh, when they had no authorization to, or right to do so. And then in the midst of these massive protests at the U.S. embassy, the United States, which had knew that Soleimani, this general, 
was coming to Baghdad for a peace negotiation. The actual reason that he was at the Baghdad airport was he was arriving to do exactly what the U.S. says needs to happen, to mediate tensions between the different factions in Iran, uh, to, to come to the table and talk and diplomatically solve the problems. And so with the knowledge that he was coming for a peace negotiation, uh, Trump and uh, the war makers in the Pentagon took this opportunity to assassinate him by drone, killing other top Iraqi officials uh, and many other people in addition to this uh, this man. And then the day after, if that wasn't bad enough, I mean, it almost like goading Iran into a response. Like, how could Iran not respond to a top assassination like this? It would be like Iran killing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or something like that in an assassination um, in, like, Germany when he was arriving at a, for a UN delegation or something. And then the day after, the U.S. carries out another unilateral military strike on a convoy with top Iraqi uh, militia leaders and kills about another, you know, 10 or so people there. So that's the timeline. And then we're in it. To, the latest news is, is that uh, Trump has issued warnings to Iran that if they act with any aggression, now if all it's all on its head. Now, if Iran does anything in response, that's Iranian aggression, not Iranian self-defense. Um, and that if Iran responds in any way, shape or form to this kind of blatant attack on its, on its people and its country, uh, that the United States will not only respond disproportionately by bombing Iranian civilians, uh, killing lots of Iranians, but will also bomb 52 cultural sites in Iran, uh, which are 2,500 years old. I mean, some of the most treasured and important human cultural sites on the planet. Of course, there's been a lot of debate over what should Trump bomb? Should he not bomb cultural sites and just bomb the military? So there's, of course, a trap uh, within that argument itself. But the tensions are high. The Secretary of Defense um, just spoke. I just watched his press conference. Uh, a reminder that the Secretary of Defense, previous to have being the Secretary of Defense, was a vice president at Raytheon, the war profiteer, and this uh, other war profiteer before that. Um, saying that not only would we respond with major war against Iran if Iran does anything in retaliation, but that we are going to refuse to leave Iraq no matter how much the Iraqi people and Iraqi government order U.S. force to leave, which is a war on its whole other, a whole other potential for war, not just if Iran responds, but if Iraq wants us to leave and the U.S. Uh, refuses to leave. And so that's bringing up everyone up to speed on the, the precipice that we're on. And uh, maybe Spencer, I don't know if you want to start by giving your kind of thoughts on this entire situation. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you. I think you covered all of the um, the objective facts um, uh, in an effective manner. There, I guess. You know, when I'm looking uh, at this entire situation uh, and its totality, what's most frustrating for me over the past week is how we're still. You mentioned uh, traps within certain arguments. We're still right. within this paradigm of, uh, you know, the liberal punditocracy talking about. You know, the just use of force, mm -hmm. um, how the U.S. needs to be more discriminatory mm -hmm. in its targets and some variation of this. And it just it goes to show you how even today, the only person who I've seen come even close to something resembling an anti-war argument is Bernie Sanders and those who support him, whether um, the Congress people who support him or whether activists that support him. But even today, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren got completely uh, outmaneuvered by Megan McCain, of all people, <laughs> when discussing, Sad. Uh, you know, Qasem Soleimani. And, and, and she just had no response. So you're telling me that one of these people who has, uh, or one of these candidates who is supposedly uh, close to Bernie in terms of her socialist appeal can't even articulate an actual anti-imperialist and anti-war viewpoint. I mean, it's very troubling. 
And it and I really also cannot stand any mention of Soleimani that starts off with, well, you know, uh, he was a bad guy. Like, no. All right. At this point, you know, at this junction we're at, it gets us nowhere by immediately ceding ground to those who are interpreting these events in bad faith, to those who still agree with some form of U.S. Uh, projection of power uh, or hegemony. And I think we need to be very clear that the only sensible, the only moral argument that we need to articulate is one that categorically refuses any U.S. military presence in Iran and elsewhere. Um, because outside of that, you're playing right into the hands of those who want to perpetuate uh, U.S. presence in Iran and Iraq and Syria uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's correct. Roy, what do you think? I agree with all that. Um, I like I like how everybody's calling this, you know, well, not everybody. Uh, certain people are calling this a decisive act. Right. Um, as, this, as if it wasn't an impulsive thing as a result of Trump being scared of uh, Benghazi, too, or being, you know, labeled for not doing enough uh, for when the embassy was stormed. You know, in Iran, I mean, this this general, yeah, millions and millions of people are flooding to the street in large part, in, you know, large part because this guy did do a lot to prevent from the incursion of ISIS into the country. That's right. So, but there was also, you know, there was also a lot of people who did not like this general in, in, in Iran. And Trump did tons to kind of consolidate the power of the regime. And anybody with half a brain you know, knows that this has certainly done more to unify uh, the country. So if you are talking about imperial strategy and all that type of thing, this doesn't seem to mesh with that. Um, but yeah, it's like this meme that I saw, it's like being strapped to a chair, watching a toddler right. play with a loaded weapon, you know, watching <laughs> Trump respond to this entire situation. And uh, yeah, it's pretty unnerving. Um, and I'd also say that, you know, you, took, you brought up 9-11 and, you know, the response and, you know, I have a few uh, Persian friends um, and they, you know, talk to me about how easy they feel about this situation. You got people being stopped at the border already. Um, yeah. There's a, a group of uh, Iranian Americans who are trying to get back into the U.S. after a concert that they went to see in Canada. They were denied entry. Uh, so, you know, this, this Islamophobia that we're seeing um, is certainly reminding me uh, of the wake of 9-11. I, I agree. And, you know, there, there is some historical precedent for how we can uh, look at how we craft slogans and tactics as a way to uh, oppose the war. Um, and you're right, Spencer. I mean, it's, it's so annoying to hear every single presidential candidate except for Bernie Sanders, you know, they all had bad statements in their own way, but all of them prefaced it with accepting Trump's yeah. narrative that Soleimani was a monster, right? And so right. then the question becomes, well, what do you do about the monster? If you agree that he was a monster, well, you must agree something must be done, da-da-da-da. So it automatically traps you in this argument on their terms. Um, and so there's there's been a lot of just that about saying, yes, he was a bad guy, he was a terrorist, he was a monster, uh, but it shouldn't have been done this way. And there's even been like, you know, uh, a little bit of the other side, people arguing why he was such a great guy, why he was so wonderful, why he was just decisive in beating ice and all these things. And it's almost like the opposite side of the coin. But I think it's important for people to recognize that it doesn't matter. And like, what's the point of debating whether or not 
this guy was good because arguments could be made for for both sides. There's probably people who don't like him. There's probably people that that really do like him. The point of it all is that the U.S. has no right to kill anybody around the world at all, um, especially in a situation where it could trigger uh, you know, mil put, putting millions and millions of lives in peril. And it reminds me of when the Gulf War was starting and this very same debate was being had because the Gulf, when the Gulf War was starting, Iraq, Saddam Hussein uh, and Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And so all of the question in the media was, do you, was it, is Saddam Hussein a dictator? Was it wrong to invade Kuwait? And so the, uh, you know, the moderates, the people that were scared of the pressure, of the war pressure, and the people who wanted to uh, criticize going to war, um, you know, the George W. Bush's war in Iraq at that time in, in 1990, they would say, yes, Saddam was a monster. The invasion of Kuwait is a great crime, but we shouldn't uh, respond this way. We should respond strategically in this other way and so forth. And then so you had a split and in the anti-war movement, where you had the anti-imperialist wing of the anti-war movement when the Gulf War was starting, chanting no war on Iraq in the streets. And then you had an entirely other wing of the anti-war movement that was like the Democratic Party, liberal, more moderate wing. And they were chanting sanctions, not war, sanctions, not war, as the as the war in Iraq was starting. The war in Iraq or the sanctions on Iraq after the Gulf War killed about 8,000 people a month, mostly babies from lack of clean drinking water and medicines and stuff like that. And so that just shows you how much of a slippery slope it is. If you begin by conceding to the Pentagon, Trump, and all of their Pentagon propaganda for why it was necessary to carry out strikes like this, instead of arguing on your terms that these are crimes, it is illegal, uh, and we have no right to do this, and we should leave the Middle East and let Iraq and Iran decide their own fate, um, then you can you lead down the same path that the the very bad path that the movement took back in 1990. Yeah, I mean, the other aspect of it too is there's a lot of uh, Orientalist uh, narratives that have arisen in the past week, even from those who I think are trying to come from something of an anti-imperialist or anti-war stance. I, I guess the most important aspect with regards to mm -hmm. Soleimani is that he's a complicated figure like many historical right. actors. And the, the relationship Soleimani had to the people of Iran, um, as well as to uh, many people in Iraq and Syria, is quite different than the relationship of, say, you know, any one of our, you know, American generals uh, to the public. I mean, when you are in a country that has been uh, besieged in some way by imperial powers, whether through sanctions or whether through more um, direct, you know, so-called kinetic warfare, I mean, it's, it's a completely different paradigm. Um, <clears throat> and I think that gets... Uh, missed a lot and and a lot of these conversations that have occurred uh since this news first broke um i i think that as you have quite effectively articulated that the terms of the argument are accepted uncritically and that's what causes so many people who are well-meaning to either cede ground to trump or to not realize that they're actually kind of presenting a sectarian or reductionist or essentialist, specifically orientalist um, view of the Iran uh, specific of Iran specifically and the Middle East generally. Right, and Rory, I wanted to get your input on this. I mean, two things really, and and Spencer, I'd like you to respond to number one that the argument from the Trump administration that Soleimani was responsible for hundreds of U.S. deaths, because, linking him to whatever role Iran played in training or equipment to the Iraqi resistance against the U.S. occupation, 
um, you know, during during the years of the of the, you know, the worst parts of the Iraq war years. But then this other narrative that I see going out that that has me the most worried, which is, you know, as we mentioned, the corporate media debating, oh, you can't bomb cultural sites. That's against the rules of war. You can only bomb legitimate military targets, almost priming people to be like relieved if the U.S. bombs the right targets and doesn't bomb uh, cultural sites. Um, you know, that Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, you know, Raytheon baby, just said that if Iran acts with any aggression or uh, i.e. self-defense, that there will be a uh, you know devastating response from the United States. Trump has, Trump has emphasized this with calling for war crimes if Iran responds in any way. But all of the opposition that I've seen to Trump and all the critiques of the war is he's not doing it right. He had no right to escalate tensions like this, um, all of this stuff. If Iran does respond, and I think it's important to point out that Iranian leaders have said clearly that American civilians and American diplomats are off limits. They are not legitimate targets and it's prohibited to attack them, that only U.S. military targets uh, are legitimate targets. And uh, Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa, a religious decree, saying the use of weapons of mass destruction is prohibited. But I, I, the thing that concerns me is if Iran does launch some kind of retaliatory, retaliatory attack against, say, they kill a Amer high-ranking American general in Iraq or something like that. All of the critiques of Trump and all of the resistance to Trump from people like Chuck Schumer and MSNBC, it will fold immediately. And then all of a sudden it will become about, well, Iran did attack American forces. We can't allow that. We have to respond, but proportionately to Iranian military targets, which of course is just a, a snowball effect and will just lead us to a path to war. So Rory, I wanted to get your thoughts on both the idea that Soleimani killed Americans and that it was right for that, that the U.S. had the right to then kill him and the hypothetical scenario if Iran does do what Trump is really goading him to do is, is to respond in some way militarily. Yeah, I think, well, the starting point is, I, at least for me, is like I had no idea who Soleimani was in, before January 3rd. Um, and I don't think a lot of people knew who this guy was. And everything I'm getting about Soleimani and is either through the administration or, you know, through other, well, the, the administration is trying to, to lead the narrative on who this guy was. Um, number one, you know, I'm certainly not going to take the word of the Trump administration on anything. Um, but number two, I'm also not going to take the, the word of a government that has killed about a million people since 9-11. Or I'm not going to take the, the moral uh, you know, I, I, they just don't have a position morally to speak out on a lot of these issues. And I, so, um, you know, most of the people that have died, innocent civilians, um, you know, why aren't innocent civilians <laughs> off, off limits as well? Um, but like you said, yeah, I, I don't really uh, obviously trust a word that comes out of this current administration's mouth. I think um, there is a legitimate case for self-defense on the on Iran's part uh, when it comes to this, um, and I think that going tit for tat in the event that Iran does strike uh, a high-ranking officer and you know hits an, a, a prize target or whatever, um, that's only going to entrench us in more endless war. And we've seen how far that has gotten us. You know, trillions of dollars spent, a million lives lost at least. Um, so I think we all need to come out 
And I think there, like you said, there's a vast majority of people in this country that do not want to go to war with Iran. They do not want to continue these endless wars. And I think we need to flood the streets and let them know, you know, loud and clear, that's exactly where we stand. Because, uh, I mean, we certainly can't afford another day of this, another another moment of this. Yeah, I mean, with regards to the first question regarding uh, Soleimani supposedly being responsible for the deaths of Americans and or the claim that he was plotting, this was another Trump administration talking point, plotting attacks right. uh-huh. that endangered American troops um, and otherwise. I mean, even a mainstream... Uh, paper like USA Today. I, I just decided to look this up. Even a mainstream uh, outlet states that no evidence was provided mm-hmm. um, for these claims that the Trump administration uh, has made. So I mean, right off the bat, I mean, you don't need to look too far to see that they're peddling a narrative that's not too um, far from what the Bush administration was uh, ginning up around 2002 and 2003. I mean, so there's that aspect of it. Um, and as Rory said too. I mean, the blood on the hands of the last few uh, administrations uh, in the United States, I mean, so far eclipses uh, anything else, I mean, in in the world right now, that how do they have any moral high ground whatsoever to make claims of that nature? Um, Secondly, uh, regarding the second, I, I think the best case scenario is that more and more, uh, countries and and, uh, and other governments condemn the U.S.'s actions. And what we could hope for, I think the best case scenario, is enough pressure that the U.S. does have to, you know, withdraw. You know, after the, um, the storming of the American embassy in Iraq, it seems like things were trending in that direction. And as Rory said, this was an impulsive action by the Trump uh, administration. And in many ways, as tragic as it is and as... Um, as much as it's a complete violation of any uh, international law and morally reprehensible, maybe out of this, um, the U.S. made a critical mistake that'll force them uh, to withdraw because they've lost any uh, and all um, of the prerogative to, uh, to be in the region. Um, I mean, it remains to be seen. I, again, I, I don't think, though, you know, I, I've studied too much history to think that just because everyone says, well, no one's going to, escalate a conflict of this magnitude uh, because, I mean, you see in the lead up to World War One, World War Two, other conflicts, there's always like this, you know, there's always this kind of narrative that emerges of, hey, well, maybe if this and this happens or if so-and-so countries are able to work it out, then any conflict could be avoided. And we need to be prepared that, you know, Contrary to what many international relations theorists think, and I think Trump is emblematic of this, not everyone is a rational actor. So really, we don't know for sure what will come out of this. I think, though, um, as as I said, the greatest hope, you know, is that the U.S. just withdraws. uh, They're completely out of Iraq and Syria, uh, anywhere else uh, they're occupying, and that this could um, avoid a full-scale conflict. But at this point... um, we can't know for sure. I, I did want to mention one thing, though, with regards to um, how this option of assassinating Soleimani was presented to Trump. And, and this goes back a long time. I've, you've seen a number of people probably comment on this on Twitter uh, and other media outlets and so on. But it's there's this idea among um, the highest ranking brass, uh, the generals in the U.S. military, that if they present different options... Um, 
to the president and include ones that are so what they perceive to be, you know, out of bounds or so absurd that then this will allow them to carry out other actions um, in terms of strikes and so on that are deemed more acceptable. And it seems like there's, from what I can understand, that many of the generals presented this option to Trump in the hopes that he wouldn't choose it, but one of the other ones, whatever that might have been. But I think what's getting lost in this conversation is that the fact that this is even on the table, I I think, I would argue, uh, demonstrates how the so-called generals being, you know, the rational ones in the room with Trump is completely nonsense, too. I mean, these guys are just as bloodthirsty. They might try to have this veneer of professionalism or of um, dignity about them. But the fact that they willingly presented this option and then carried it out right. without any you know, uh, refusal, without any difficulty, I mean, it's just utterly perverse uh, in the highest sense of the word. Yeah, you know, this it's it's really just unbelievable that this is how our society functions, right? I mean, we know that there is a sector of the ruling class uh, in the military establishment, the media establishment, the political and economic establishment that very much want a war with Iran. I mean, every, the entire capitalist class wants Iran to be destroyed through some form or another, but there's an extremist wing that thinks a war sooner than later is the best course of action for U.S. capitalism. And so this this faction has always existed. They've pressured every president to go to war with Iran. You know, they create think tanks to turn out people like John Bolton to speak on their behalf. You know, they train generals who end up in the Pentagon. They, you know, groom politicians who end up in office and on the Security Council and all this stuff. So there's always been this extremist, you know, people like Mike Pompeo and this extremist sector has always existed that tries to always push the president to go to war with Iran. Um, sometimes presidents are more resistant. People like Obama, who favors the sanctions course and are hurting them economically and restricting them through diplomatic pressure and things like that. Um, but then we're completely at the mercy of someone like Trump, this combination of this extremist right-wing faction that has so much power because they have so much money, billions and billions of dollars to conduct these operations. And then someone like Trump, who's you know just a narcissist. He only cares about how he looks on television. He just wants to be remembered as like a strong man and like seen as like a strong, powerful guy who knocked out terrorists or whatever. So just this combination of this, this faction of the military and political establishment pushing Trump, you know, suggesting to Trump do something. And it just takes Trump being like, yeah, okay, today I feel like doing that. Then millions of lives are put in peril because of just, that's how our society functions. Cause we're able, there's this empowered faction. And then someone like Donald Trump can just come in and have so much, so much power over our lives. It just really speaks to the kind of how uh, ridiculous this entire system is. And that it's also just not you know, the whim of a president, right? The idea that it was just, oh, Trump was just feeling like doing this and it was crazy. Even the leaks from the Pentagon, I feel were strategic to be like, oh, we didn't know he was going to do this. It's really, really weird. Um, there's, we know that there's this faction that exists that that is more hardline uh, with Iran. Um, I did want to say that, you know, if there is a response from Iran and, you know, which, which is possible, um, it is not, Iran's fault. If Americans die, which and and their pictures will be shown all over television, and it will be the loudest thing beating the drums for war. It's going to be Trump's and the Pentagon's fault. And this, we went through the same thing with the Iraq War. As soon as the Iraq War started getting bad, 
the rationale for soldiers became, well, they killed our guys. And like, I'm avenging our guys. Like, we can't let them kill our guys. But the, the argument that we would always have to make is, it, it wasn't their fault that they killed Americans in their own country occupying their streets. It was Bush's fault for sending us when we had no reason to be there. And so we have to be prepared to make that case um, because as long as troops are there against the wishes of the Iraqi people, um, there where they shouldn't be, uh, they're of course in danger of, of this kind of thing happening. And I think that it's uh, there's a high potential of that and it could, could really turn things around. It's Trump's fault if Iran responds. It's because of his actions and his actions alone and the Pentagon's insistence on keeping U.S. troops in Iraq uh, where they shouldn't be. Um, I did want to shift gears, though, to, you know, Spencer, you, Rory and Spencer, both of you um, got out of the military in your own way uh, after your kind of political awakening. But Spencer, specifically you under Trump, right? I mean, that's right. when you made the realization that, well, uh, I feel like being in the military under Trump things are at a, there's higher stakes now. And, and this is really a time to, to make a decision. Um, you, I think now have been pretty vindicated by that, by with this, because now I think a lot of people are in your position being like, damn, I wish I had uh, made a decision to do something earlier. Cause now it's like urgent, right? And now it's right. like, oh damn, like if you want to make a decision to get out, you got to start working on that stuff quick because in a week you could be uh, on a plane or, or now there's people, you know, 4,000 soldiers already sent to Kuwait. Um, so it kind of vindicates your decision and kind of speaks to like the situation that soldiers are in now and whether this should be the wake up call. I mean, whether or not you're in a unit that is going to be deploying, of course, it's especially urgent if you think you are one of those, but just in gen, just the general understanding now of what it means to be in the military. Um, I think this should really be a wake up call. And so I wanted to ask Rory, you know, because of the process you went through and the work that you've done, you know, advocating for words sisters and stuff like that, what is your advice to people in the military now uh, who are looking at this situation and then feeling very uncomfortable about uh, their role in uniform? Uh, so uh, let me just quickly start by saying, um, you know, the idea that, you know, Trump is the uh, only person detached from reality and everybody he's surrounded by adults or maybe even Pompeo is detached from reality or, you know, certain members of administration. I mean, we saw, you know, in Afghanistan, um, you know, constantly being played. We had no understanding of the culture, no understanding of the language. You know, one day we're going after a warlord, one day we're going after a Taliban, they're switching sides. We had no idea what was going on um, during our deployments. And, you know, as the Pentagon, as the Afghanistan papers revealed, all that is pretty true. I mean, none of these generals have any clue what's going on in these these areas. They're goaded by these defense corporations. They're goaded by, you know, these huge budgets. Um, and they're just completely thoughtless. And I think um, calling that out and letting, you know, active duty soldiers know that, yes, it's okay to call your chain of command complete dumbasses because that's what they are and say am i going to go kill and die for this guy am i going to go be maimed for this guy or like the 40,000 or so you know soldiers who can't leave their basements since you know participating in the global war on terror in 2001 the number's probably much higher um, is it is that worth it for the for these clowns um, so start talking about that. Yes, as much as you want to pretend it's about the guy to your right and left, and it, actually it is still about the guy to your right and left. Do you want to see your ranger buddies or do you want to see your, your other 
soldiers die for completely senseless reasons. And as the Afghanistan papers just revealed, we've been fighting for completely senseless reasons and to no good end. And I think a lot of active duty soldiers understand that now. And it's, um, I think there's an increasingly small percentage of actually enlisted soldiers who, who believe we're on the right path um, and who believe we're fighting for freedom and democracy or to believe that we're fighting to keep our, you know, the United States safer. Um, so my only advice is to start talking about that openly. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think you're going to find a lot more sympathetic ears than, than you think. And, and I mean, the other aspect of it too is like, should you decide to speak out or resist or whatever, you know, form that might take there. And I've said this before. There are probably going to be some consequences of some sort. But at the end of the day, when you take those steps and you find the courage to resist, the consequences that you might meet in the short term do not even compare to the manner in which you have asserted your own moral and ethical subjectivity in the face of unmitigated disaster and horror. And there is no, no substitute for that. I mean, in many ways, it actually, it actually fulfills the promise of the so-called uh, integrity or respect or honor that you possess while a soldier. Taking those steps to resist the war effort is how you actually redeem those values. And in my experience... And in Rory's, and Mike, I'm sure you can attest this as well, I think we all have experienced that in one way or another. Yeah, that's right. And we also, we, we know their record. I mean, the reason that, um, you know, Rory, you and I are of the same generation of military, like, you know, just before 9-11 and just after 9-11, um, we have the experience of knowing what they're going to do, right? We, and the most important thing for soldiers today, this generation of soldiers to understand, is that what the Afghanistan and Iraq war era that we went through proved is that those military generals and the politicians, that they are just going to lie. They're just going to straight up lie about the need to go to war, why we need to go, what it's going to be like. They're just not going to tell us the truth. I mean, they've established that, a clear record of that through all of uh, you know modern history, but especially in the post 9-11 era. So we can't trust them. And, and as you were saying, worry about like, do you want to die for these guys? Like these bumbling generals who like, are we we have no connection to in any way and people like Mark Esper who's a Raytheon CEO like you really want to die or kill other people or bomb a cultural site for some Raytheon CEO um and so so we know their record and not only is their record that they're going to lie to us about going to war but we know from Afghanistan and Iraq that when the war starts going badly and blows up in their faces and doesn't go as those super smart generals planned, that they're just going to send more and more people to die because they're like, oh, well, this isn't going well. We better send more people. Um, and then it just led to the kind of bloodbath that that the Iraq war and, and Afghanistan's war, uh, Afghanistan war was. Um, and so there's just no trust in first that 
the credibility in sending us, and then what they're going to do that's in the best interest of our lives and the lives of other people uh, once we're there. And then, of course, when we get sent home. I mean, the whole generation of soldiers coming home from the worst year of Iraq and Afghanistan, they were punished for seeking mental health care. They were, um, you know, ridiculed and punished to the point where there is this epidemic of suicides. That's not because just the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was bad. That was because of how the politicians and military officials treated everyone when they got home. So there's no reason that they've lost all right to have our lives in their hands. Um, and that's so that's why people should explore their options right now. Um, we've given it before, but you should always contact the GI rights hotline. Uh, the number is 877-447-4487. Um, you know, not just for your rights of conscientious objection. And I think it's important to know that with conscientious objection packets, as soon as you drop your packet, even when it's still being processed and it's not approved, they have to like take you off deployment status and stuff because they have to honor your packet and put you through the process. And so it's something that in a pinch you can do if you feel like you're gearing up, get that packet ready and drop it. Um, and that can help you out. But the GI rights hotline can also help you, your options going AWOL. There are, there, you do have rights when you're AWOL and it's, it can end up not being as bad as you think. If there's other, you know, medical things, avenues that you have to get out of service or to avoid a deployment. Um, but I did want to get, uh, mention to you guys that I was really shocked by the outpouring of, um, uh, contacts from active duty and reserve and national guard people. I just did one post on our Eyes Left account, that if any active service members want information on how to get out of the military or how to resist Trump's war, not be a part of Trump's war, to contact us. And I've spent the last like three days talking to dozens of active duty service members who are asking about conscientious objecting, asking about their rights to resist the war from within, all of this stuff. I mean, it is more than when I was doing this kind of work at the height of the Iraq war and the height of the Afghanistan war. Um, I'm really oh, I'm really shocked by the, the overwhelming response. I wanted to get, you know, number one, that says you're not alone if you're in the military having these thoughts. But I don't know, what, what do you guys think about that, the, the situation that we're in, the kind of different level of consciousness in the military and what that means for building resistance inside? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's quite um, overwhelming in a sense, um, and it's a lot to keep up with. But I think the, the key dimension to all of this is that um, the more people that resist, as Rory, have you, you've insisted this for a long time, the easier uh, it is um, to take those first steps. I mean, when you're isolated, when you're uh, the only one speaking out, it becomes a lot more daunting. But if there are, uh, if there is a groundswell of people, I mean, I think that's when I think historically uh, something significant is happening. Um for you, Mike, uh, you joined up with an incipient movement of some sort, and there are different conditions then. Uh, Rory, coming from the Ranger Battalion uh, at the time you were, like you said, you kind of had to go it alone in some way. And for me, um, I kind of had to go it alone in my own right. I still have, you know, friends in the military and those who question um, what, what happens there. But in terms of actual resistance and getting out, you know, I was by myself. However... I do think that, and, and I can't emphasize this enough, those consequences I mentioned that you might face upon deciding to um, resist are very much mitigated when there are a lot more people to deal with. I mean, yes, during the Vietnam era, there was the draft, but many, and in fact, a great, a great many of the resistors were volunteers themselves. And when you're trying to punish that many people, it becomes a lot more difficult um, for the powers that be. Um, so, I, I mean, in the final analysis, I do genuinely think that 
the ideals of peace and justice are still very much possible today. And I think we have to believe that. And deciding to lay down your arms, um, as you beautifully express in your latest piece, Rory, and as all of us have said in some capacity before, I think deciding to lay down your arms is a very important step in achieving those ideals and making them our reality. Yeah, um, I think you know some of the best people sign up for the military, people with high ideals, people who are um, willing to do more than just talk about things. They're willing to put their money where their mouth is and put themselves in a dangerous situation to stand up for something that they believe in. Unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of these people are led into the military because of, you know, a $700 million a year propaganda campaign led by the U.S. government, you know, and the bought and paid for corporate media, who basically is a state media, especially during times of war. And I completely understand, um, you know, why people end up in the military. Um, but I also trust that a lot of the soldiers currently uh, in the military are able to come to terms with the fact that they were lied to. They have, they, they have a sense of moral outrage uh, with the things that they saw. Um, and, you know, the thing, when I started feeling the sense that I was more of a bully than I was a freedom fighter, I was um, doing more to make the world more dangerous as opposed to more safe, uh, I started picking up some books and, and reading a little bit. I think the first book I ended up picking up was like Stephen Kinzer's Overthrow and saw that this wasn't the first time the U.S. had been lying to its people, you know, sending them off to war. There were countless examples. And there have also been countless war resistors who've stood up. You know, we talked about the San Patricio Battalion or, um, you know, even someone like Nat Turner or some people who rose up against um, an unjust system and said, I'm not going to take it anymore. And I think the most successful people, you know, like we've been talking about, did it in groups and were able to organize and coordinate. Um, Andy Stratt, yeah. we talked about him um, yep. doing, doing union uh, petitions within the military, uh, as short-lived as it was. But that did, went a long way as far as organizing uh, people during the Vietnam War. Um, and then obviously the thing we need to also talk about is the support network necessary for soldiers to, you know, they need a place to land. Yeah. Um, the best things that they had during the Vietnam War were these coffee houses. And unfortunately, they've gone away uh, in a large sense. But, um, you know, we've done this kind of thing before. And, you know, because there is precedent, I think there's the possibility to do it again. Yes, the conditions have changed. Um, but, you know, it's an all-volunteer military as opposed to a draft. But in a lot of ways, it still is a draft. It's an economic right. draft, you know. And um, so it's, it's not just about the soldiers finding the courage to revolt. It's about the larger society um, building a support system for them to come home to. And um, so it's, it's kind of all of us and, uh, that need to be a part of it. And I, think, I do think we have the numbers <laughs> if, if we if we find the right motivation and the right leadership. That's right. No, I agree. Yeah, and your your latest article, Rory, uh, published at truthout.org, is called Many Soldiers Want to Stop Fighting. Let's Build a Movement That Welcomes Them. Uh, I hope everyone checks that out. And, you know, it is encouraging the number of people who have reached out. You know, it's important to contact the GI Rights Hotline for kind of expert advice on what you can do. 
But please reach out to us also through Eyes Left because, um, you know, whether or not you need advice directly from us, which we're more than happy to give you, it's important to be networking together because there is such a large number now and there is so much more potential than I've ever seen for kind of more large scale resistance within the military that would send us such an important message not just to the U.S. government, but to the people of Iran and Iraq um, and to the American people that, you know, not only do the majority of people not want this war, but the majority of people in the military don't want this war. I think there's a different uh, kind of composition of the military today. I know that the, the army said that the reason they did so well with their recruiting goals this year is because of the student loan debt crisis. Um, you know, it's important to remember that the People that want war with Iran, you know, the big banks, Wall Street, the ones that will benefit from war with Iran, they're the same people that are calling your phone every morning asking for their student loan payment. Um, and so it's the same banks that want war with Iran that are the reason you joined the military in the first place. Um, I think it's encouraging that uh, Bernie, I think it's important to say that Bernie Sanders has raised more donations from active military members than everyone else combined, including Trump. So Trump, Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, you combine all their donations from the military, Bernie has more than all of them combined. And so I think that's that's kind of part of the difference I'm seeing now in the, the era is that people, young people, especially in the military, um, have a different political consciousness and identify with someone who is a socialist and identify with someone who by far not only gave the best political response to Trump's actions in Iran, but you know gave the most urgent and robust response to it as well. And so you're not alone. And I think that this is a should be the time, the moment that we take as a moment that you get involved in, in something bigger um, and, and connect with us so we could we could help help you coordinate that. OK, so I thought it'd be fun if we ended by playing a little game where I read you a statement from a Democratic candidate and the both of you can guess who it is and give your feedback on the strength of their statement. You guys down for that? Sure. Yeah. All right, so these are abbreviated because some of them are really long. Um, but the first one is, no American will mourn Qasem Soleimani's passing. He deserved to be brought to justice for his crimes against American troops and thousands of innocents throughout the region. He supported terror and sowed chaos. None of that negates the fact that this is a hugely escatory move in an already dangerous region. Um, I hope the Trump administration has thought through the second and third order consequences on the path they have chosen. Uh, but I fear this administration has not demonstrated any turn and at any turn, the discipline or long-term vision necessary. I mean, right off the, I mean, that is like the, the example of everything <laughs> we've talked about on this episode. I'm trying to, who I'm trying to, is that, um, I'm trying. Who's still even in the race at this point? Um, I don't know. We're is just that, doing the top five, I guess. Top top five. I mean, it's it doesn't, that doesn't sound. Is that it's not Biden, is it? That's Biden. Oh, it you is. Okay. It. All right. There we go. <laughs> one for one. Yeah. I mean, that's that's actually quite fitting uh, for him. Um, yeah. I, I mean, again, that's just the spitting image of this milk toast liberal non-argument that immediately accepts all of the terms Trump's presented and, you know, doesn't really say anything at all, uh, aside from, you know, furthering the uh, projection of U.S. military power worldwide. Yeah, it sounds quite enabling. Um, I was going to say Mayor Pete on that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess Joe Biden probably had someone write that for me. Yes. All right. Here's the next one. 
Rory, see if you can get this one. It is Soleimani was a murderer responsible for the deaths of thousands, including hundreds of Americans. But this reckless move escalates the situation with Iran and increases the likelihood of more deaths. Our priority must be to end another costly war, avoid another costly war. Um, I'm going to say I don't think there's enough of a progressive edge on it to call it Warren. Um, so I'm going to say Klobuchar. Ooh, it was Warren. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's gone full mask off over the past uh, couple months, you know, if you really think about it. Yep. Like even the veneer of, of so-called like pseudo-socialism or progressivism has slowly just all but dissipated. Um, and then her allowing Meghan McCain to just body her today was just, I mean. Yeah. An even more egregious <laughs> example of that. But. As long as we go after Salome and Iran with green technology, we're fine. Right, right. Well, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. I mean, I, let's just make a moment to notice that, to note that Warren's green military plan was probably one of the most infuriating aspects of the past year of, of political discourse. I mean, just truly mm. beyond idiotic and, you know, morally repugnant. Yeah, if ever there was an oxymoron, it's green military. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, it's this weird, uh, it's like the reason the U.S. military is the biggest polluter in the world is because there's so many fucking U.S. bases all over the world right. that are just pumping out diesel fuel and shit all the time. And so, like, to say that we should just give all those bases, like, solar panels instead of, like, closing down the bases is uh, a little weird. Um so I'm going to give you this one in two parts. One, the first is the response to the bombing of the Ira of the Iraqis prior to the Soleimani killing, and then it's the Soleimani killing. See if you can guess who this one is. The problems created by Trump's impulsive erratic military action um, are again on display. Trump's military strike against Iranian militia was not Iranian-backed. Iranian militia was impulsive, short-sighted, and lacked strategic purpose. Serving the interests of Saudi Arabia and jihadists like Al-Qaeda, Trump is turning us deeper into a Middle East quagmire. And then after the assassination, quote, what is the end goal? What are we trying to achieve here? Trump's policies are short-sighted, undermining our national security. Iran is now closer to developing nuclear weapons. Trump's policies are short-sighted and have no end goal or strategy. Who is that one? Uh, I mean, that's clearly Mayor Military Industrial Complex P. Oh. Wrong again. That one was Tulsi. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, she's still in the race? I didn't know she was. Yeah. Well, she, ba okay. she basically, she actually moved to New Hampshire. So it seems like she's like just running in New Hampshire now. So she's mm -hmm. moved to New Hampshire for weeks and it's just there doing stuff every day. Yeah. That one was caught me. That one was focused more than others on the strategic purpose of it. Yeah. And, and also this idea that it's serving the interests of Al Qaeda and Saudi Arabia as if, the U.S. doesn't have interest in attacking and destroying Iran, you know, from the ruling class perspective. Yeah. So I thought that was a little... Uh, well, I, I mean, it was think? spoken like a field grade officer, you know, the whole strategic right. purpose thing. Yeah, and I found it ironic because, like, you know, this was she's running as the foreign policy candidate, the anti-war candidate, and the yeah. fact that she was totally outflanked by Sanders kind of has kind of got kind of weak responses to this. This, was, this should have been her moment where she comes out as... You know, especially being in the military, you know, and I think it'll yeah. be complicated for her if the Hawaii National Guard gets activated in, in response to this Iran escalating tensions. And then all of a sudden she's, you know, under Trump's command or taking part in actual operations. But, you know, I feel like she it would have been very powerful if she was able to come out in a strong way as a soldier against this. But um, kind of is in, in a weird position now. Rory, I'll give you the last, last one. This is either Klobuchar or Buttigieg. Um, 
And it is the top priority of a commander in chief must be to protect Americans and our national security interests. There is no question that Soleimani was a threat to that safety and security, and that he masterminded threats and attacks on Americans and our allies, leading to hundreds of deaths. But there are serious questions about how this decision was made and whether we are prepared for the consequences. I'm going to say Mike Bloomberg in one of his oh. ads. In the, no, I'm, gonna, I'm going to say Mayor Pete because I've said Mayor Pete. Yeah, times. it's Mayor Pete. There you it is. got it. That one was Mayor Pete. And actually, you know, what's funny is that the CIA Twitter account actually retweeted this tweet of his. Oh, like straight up the CIA. Um, well, Rory, I hate to say you are our guest, but you lost the challenge. Spencer oh, won it. Congratulations, Spencer, for yes. winning the guess the worst takes from the presidential candidates. I, I have to admit, I haven't seen... I haven't been following the Democratic debates all that closely. So, well, in, in my, you know. Well, I mean, if it makes this is the worst thing I've ever won in my life. If that makes you feel any better, so. Okay. I, I think again, why Bernie's response resonates is that there's a consistency behind it. He's not just. I mean, because again, any candidate can tap into the language of anti-imperialism or anti-war sentiments. I mean, Gabbard herself does this at times, but why it's actually so meaningful with Bernie is that when you look at his foreign policy record uh, specifically, uh, you could connect that to his statement and what she actually is um, morally, ethically, and politically opposed to um, any sort of military escalation or war with Iran or elsewhere uh, for that matter. It's really uh, quite as simple as that. Uh, from my view. But he also like gave the most amount of attention to it, did a huge speech, did a huge press conference, did multiple videos, really coming out in front as the one who took this the most seriously and the danger most seriously. But even politically, mentioning hundreds of thousands of Iraqi dead from US policy, mentioning that it was, you know, using the word assassination, saying that the US has no right to do this and calling unequivocally for a complete end to US occupation in the Middle East, um, I thought was was very important. And so, you know, the idea that so many soldiers support Bernie Sanders, um, you should listen to the guy you support and kind of take take to heart his words. And uh, that should inform the decision of what you're about to do next. And I think that all of us here on this show, you know, if we could turn back the hands of time, would have made very different decisions before doing our first deployment. Um, and I think that you you all have that opportunity with more tools than we had when, when we were getting ready to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. More tools and support uh, and information at your disposal to, to make that right decision. One final thing, um, Rory, since you are the guest, there's a part in your book where you mention after you have decided you're done with this, you, you want to go the route of conscientious objector, where I believe you're actually back home in Chicago and you get a phone call from uh, your sergeant major. Can you just you know say on this episode what you um, articulated to him uh, when you received that phone call, kind of give us you know, what was happening there? Oh, man. Um, I think I've tried to block it out. Um, <laughs> but I think I said something to the effect that you don't get to tell me what to do anymore. And it was, you know, if you've been in the military, the sergeant major is almost like a, a mini god on, on a certain level. And, uh, you know, to be able to say that to this guy, who I think had been to um, Somalia, um, it, felt, it felt pretty cleansing, to be honest with you, and pretty pretty powerful. Uh, yeah, I was scared right after I got off the phone, but it, it also felt like I had myself back for a little bit. And um, I knew it was just the beginning of, you know, the shitstorm that awaited me when I got back. But, you know, speaking truth to power, um, I think in that situation was, was a great thing. And uh, it's nice to be reminded of who you are. 
uh, on a certain level. Um, so yeah, I think that's what I said. Um, I just wanted to thank you guys for putting this podcast on. Um, you know, trying to get a good night's sleep is like a full-time job for me. So I try to <laughs> limit the amount of time I think about the military and, and, and this topic as much as possible. But I'm really glad you guys do this. Um, it's an, I know it's an awesome resource for a lot of people. Um, and hopefully you guys can continue to do this for a long time. And, you know, just thanks for doing this. Thank you, Rory. Um, you've always been a great comrade and friend. It was just fantastic finally being able to do this episode with you. You've been listening to Eyes Left with Spencer Rapone. And Mike Preisner. All of our content is free for everyone, but we can't do it without your help. So if you support this project, go to patreon.com slash eyes left to make it possible to continue. Be sure to follow us on social media at eyes left pod. And if you're in the military, a military family member or veteran and want to share your story, report problems and mismanagement, or need advice or assistance knowing your rights, including your right to get the hell out or refuse deployment, please write us at eyesleftpod at gmail.com. Eyes left.